This is Changing the Narrative. I'm your host, David Reeves. I have with me today uh, Dr. Jerry Bergman. Dr. Bergman has been a friend for many years and is an expert in quite a few fields because you have firsthand knowledge in probably a, a more varied a uh, number of fields than most people, don't you? I get bored and want to move on. <laughs> uh, tell me just a little bit about your background. Well, I mostly taught college for 41 years, taught the sciences, and uh, worked as a clinical therapist at a Arlington Psychological Associates. Okay. And got my license, worked there for a while, worked with the typical patient you get in a small clinic okay. like that, and uh, worked in prison. Okay. And I taught at several different colleges, Spring Arbor University I taught at, a Christian college, and as well as I also taught at uh, Bowling Green State University and uh, University of Toledo and the Medical College of Ohio. So I have quite a experience <laughs> teaching. That's amazing. And, and uh, you have to ever clarify that. When I was at the prison, no, 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 not as an inmate. <laughs> oh, not, not, not as an inmate. Yeah. <laughs> you just uh, say when I work there. That's right, yeah. Uh, no, that's that's amazing. All right, so you're currently based out of Ohio, right? Right. Okay. Uh, but you travel all around speaking. All around the world. You have written around, is it 60? 60 books, yeah. Books. Not all out yet, but they're close. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Most of them are out. I, I've read a number of them. A fantastic research. And... Uh, Again, those books on varied topics. Uh, we've had you on before talking about some of the dangers of um, uh, of Darwinian theories, sort of the dark side of Darwin, how it leads to racist thoughts. Um, but today, I kind of want to focus on some of uh, evolution's blunders, frauds, the fairy tales surrounding this whole aspect of evolutionary theory. And there are many. Uh, and one reason, not so much deliberately to, to, to fool people, but they are anxious to prove evolution. And when they have what appears to be evidence, they grab onto it and say, hey, this is proof of evolution. Now, the Piltdown Affair, of course, that, that was likely a fraud. Yeah. And we're not sure why it was done. Dawson is the person who we think did it. Mm -hmm. And we think he did it probably because he was trying to get prestige in the, in the scientific world. And he felt he could get that by discovering the missing link, so to speak. Hmm. And he discovered it, didn't live long enough really to see it exposed. But indeed, it's amazing that it was accepted for, what, 30-some years yeah. before it was finally exposed. And so, therefore, it's a wonder that, indeed, people were gullible enough to accept it. And when, when they did research on it and begin to expose it, they realized it wasn't just a good fraud. It wasn't a skillful fraud. It was a very poor fraud. But you, missed. But missed. Simply because they needed something to grasp onto to make the theory of evolution work. Exactly. And they accepted it in spite of the fact that if you just look at it with a small magnifying glass, you could see foul marks on the teeth. And they were changed in order to look like human feet. And it's, <laughs> it's amazing, but that's what... That's the history behind it. Well, I think what I'd like for you to do uh, before we kind of move on is let's, let's hit several different topics. And for the first topic, let's start with Piltdown Man because many people have heard of Piltdown Man. Uh, many times we have this kind of this, this small knowledge of the topic. But break it down for me. What years are we talking? What happened? Who discovered what? And then... How was it exposed? Basically around 1900, 
the Piltdown Man was discovered in Piltdown, a place in England. Okay. And it was discovered the primarily the skull as well as some of the bones. And therefore, it was put together as a supposed to be a missing link. Mm-hmm. And it fit what they expected then to the missing link to be like. And this is one reason we believe Dawson did this because he was trying to imitate what the theory was when they expect a missing link, they expect certain traits. Well, he produced this this skull to have certain traits so that this would therefore prove indeed that humans evolved. Now, this wasn't his focus to prove they evolved. He was, his focus, I think, was to gain prestige in the scientific community. And he therefore produced this, uh, this skeleton. One of the main problems I saw right away was it was found in a bunch of dirt which flooded. And fossils do not last very long in wet conditions which are exposed to floods. That's true. Most fossils they find are in very dry areas in deserts, which therefore can be covered with rock, et cetera, and preserved in the climate is such where it's dry, and so therefore you don't have much water, and therefore, therefore you don't have much deterioration. So that's one of the first things that should have alerted people to mm-hmm. there's a problem. Uh, is I lead paleontological digs. Um, every September to Kansas. And most people think of Kansas as completely flat, but the farther west you go, right on the western uh, edge, there there's something known as the Niobrara Formation. The Niobrara Formation is al- almost looks like Badlands, right? Mm-hmm. Where you've got flat all around, but then you have these little fingers of canyons that have been carved in because of water erosion, usually due to the uh, grass not protecting the soil in that area whatever. But when we look for fossils, the first thing we do is we start scouring those fingers where water erosion has taken place. And we know that if we see a fossil in that area on one of these fingers, these marl chalky areas, it's probably going to be badly eroded. It, it probably will not be complete. But if for some reason we can find just the edge of something that has been eroded away that maybe we're going to find more complete back into the hillside. That's typically how a lot of paleontological discoveries are made. But when we find them in the eroded areas, these fossils are usually falling apart, they're crumbly, they're sun-bleached. Fossils simply don't last a long time, and neither do bones, actually, when they're exposed to the elements. Yeah. And yet, why do we have such a complete fossil record? Can we talk about that for a second? Is is that a clue as to how they were buried? Yeah, it rapid we know that's well documented that rapid burial is a critical to preserve the fossils. Okay. But of course the evolutionists say, well, we had lots of small floods throughout the world. So they were rapidly buried by a flood, but they're small floods. The difference between what they believe and what creationists believe is that we believe there is one enormous flood that occurred pretty much the same time throughout the earth, and therefore the burial was pretty much at the same time and not individual floods that occurred 3rd century, 5th century, ninth century, and so on. Yeah. So therefore, there's, a, there's no question that indeed rapid burial is critical. It's a matter of when it occurred and how much it caused. Yeah, like you said, even secular scientists, paleontologists, will say it must have been rapid burial to preserve these fossils in such good conditions. Uh, a, a bone sitting at the bottom of the ocean for several years is not going to last. A bone sitting in a field, uh, an animal sitting in a field for mere 
days, weeks, or months. Well, all of a sudden you're going to get scavengers starting to pick it apart. You've got bone-eating vultures. You've got all of these things. And then if there is, if there's any flooding, if there's any heavy rains, those bones are going to get scattered, washed around, and, and not really survive in a well-preserved state. So it has to be rapid burial. The, the question would be, well, was it rapid burial over vast ages of small catastrophes, or was it a massive catastrophic event recorded in biblical history, by the way, yeah. <laughs> that no one seems to want to talk about? Yeah, it's amazing that they don't, and of course they know where it's going. It's yep. kind of conversations come up, and you know where they're going, and you say, "Stop! Don't want to hear it. <laughs> I want don't want you to go on the next step." Mm -hmm. And so that's what we see among, especially the area we're interested in, is what the Bible has to say about, of course, history. Yeah. And uh, but by the way, it's not many. Of course, bones are preserved very well, but on the other hand, I'm told they have about 50 million different fossils in museums throughout the world, and. One interesting thing is is that somebody would be going through a drawer of a fossil that was discovered 50 years ago or 100 years ago mm -hmm. and find a new great discovery from that fossil, which has been in that drawer for 50 or 100 years. Uh -huh. And then that, that'll get the front page of Science Magazine, and they'll say, the new discovery made, and we found this and that and so on, and this is a very important discovery. And then you read the article and you realize this wasn't discovered last month somewhere in Africa, right. but this was discovered in some drawer somewhere. Somebody opened it up and said, this fossil looks interesting. I think I'll do some work and look into it in more detail. Isn't that the case that so many times when we, I know, uh, when I lead digs, we'll, we'll pick up hundreds of fossils from giant marine predators, from mosasaurs and and Zephactinus and Ichthyodectes, giant clams and pieces of turtles and squids and all sorts of things. But then some you can't identify right away. Some you keep encased in rock, and then and you bring all of this back to the lab, and then you realize, well, I might have the world's greatest discovery sitting here. And it's been sitting there for the past year, and I haven't even touched it, right? Yeah, well, it takes labor and takes work. and It does. But when we find those new discoveries, uh, most of the time, actually, I would argue all of the time, those discoveries seem to point to what we as Christians would have known all along, that the Bible is correct, that animals reproduce according to their kinds, that there uh, are no missing links, that there are distinct genetic boundaries in between um, different types of animals. All of these things that we would have been able to predict, and in fact, m many scientists have predicted based on biblical um, biblical statements mm -hmm. and been vindicated in the long run. Yeah, right. Most all fossils you find, you can identify as a turtle, etc. Yeah. And you can do that because it looks just like turtles, etc. that are around today. That's that's interesting. All right, let's get back to the blunders. Can you give me another example of evolutionary blunders? One I'm just doing work on now is the horse evolution blunder. Okay. Pictures of evolution of horses from a three-toed on each foot animal to one toe has been touted in the textbooks for a century at least. And these pictures are found, you see at the top, you see this animal that looks kind of like a fox, yeah. and it's got three toes on each foot. Okay. And then you can see a progression to the modern horse that has only one large toe, and they point out this is evolution. This is proof of evolution. In fact, many claim that this is one of the best proofs of evolution that there is. 
And now that they've looked into that and we've made a lot more discoveries, we realize that what we have simply is just horses. Hmm. And now they recognize that this was a blunder because we made this out of something that wasn't there. And therefore, when you look at it carefully, you find there's lots of horses, lots of variety. And yeah, you have some horses that have three toes. You have others that have one large toe. And this, we find, exists today. Hmm. It's like dogs. You see a huge amount of difference between dogs, size-wise, trait-wise, and so on. And yet we all recognize them as dogs, which, as far as we can tell, all came from the original wolf family. Hmm. And if you look at the skeletons, especially the skull of these different dogs, you would easily say, well, this is not just a different species, but a different family. <laughs> yeah, there are huge differences. And we see the same thing is true with horses. And so now evolutionists recognize that all we have is a lot of variety of horses. We don't have a progression from one primitive small horse to the large horse we see today. Nothing like that at all. And some evolutionists openly admit that this basically has been a mistake and that we need to rewrite the textbooks and indeed point out that indeed all we have is a huge amount of variety as we have in, in dogs and cats and many other animals. So horse, just horses, there's a lot of variety. Uh, a horse is a horse, of course, of course. Horses, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, okay, talk about, um, I guess, what would it be? Linnaean taxonomy versus sort of the biblical definition of kind. Yeah, Linnaeus, of course, was a Swedish biologist, botanist, I think, actually. And he was basically trying to determine, trying to group. And he found it difficult to group certain animals. Mm -hmm. The biblical kind, though, we're looking at the creation kind. And then from that creation kind, all the variety we see today came from. Okay. And so originally there would be only so many creation kinds. And therefore, today, the animals we have would be all descended back to that creation kind. Linnaeus, I think to some degree in his mind, was looking at that. Yeah. But on the other hand, he was also looking at morphological traits. He was also looking at animals which were around in his day in Sweden where he did the work. Right. And therefore, he wasn't exposed to so many other animals in other parts of the world, which, of course, he had no idea that they existed. And we didn't until later. And yet today in Greek and Latin terminology, we still group animals together in this same tax taxonomic um, grouping which mm -hmm. includes family and order species and all of that right and he did such a good job that today we still basically use his system yeah now okay the biblical kind uh, those original created groups of families whether it be the dog kind or the equid the horse kind or the cats or whatever would that would that sort of uh, match any any designation in taxonomy today, like the family level, or do we know? Well, that's it, I read several books on taxonomy, did an article on taxonomy, and it seems like it's easy to classify a dog's a dog's, a cat's a cat, and there's no problem in us classifying an animal in one category or the other. But the book written by a Cornell-trained taxonomist, she brought out very effectively that taxonomy today is a mess. Okay. It's really hard to determine. Some categories, no problem. Yeah. But it's not nearly as simple as it seems to be. And she, in her book, basically documented that it's, it's difficult. And we have to kind of guess. We have to assume. We have to try to put things together. But as far as the science of taxonomy goes... 
she wonders, is this really a science? Or is this a guessing game or a classification game? We have boxes and we try to put animals in certain boxes. Yeah. Somewhat arbitrarily, she stressed. Interesting. Okay. So it might need a, it might need a rewrite in the future. And they recognize it does, but I rewrite my taxonomy, have a certain conclusion. You then come to a different conclusion. Yeah. I think she, what she was trying to say is it's really difficult to develop a taxonomical system. And she illustrated that with eloquently in her book and talked about different taxonomy systems that people use. And, and now, let's just say we went with biblical um, classifications of, of kind and we were able to somehow get basic groups or kinds of animals together. We really don't need further classification except for speciation adaptation, right? Because we're looking at original created kinds and we know that they did not evolve from some other type of an animal. So that simplifies things a little bit, doesn't it? It would, but scientists try to group things according to category with a lot of creatures, other groups with fewer creatures, okay. other groups with even fewer creatures. And so we take life and you got life divided up into plants and animals basically. And, yeah. and of course, eukaryotes and prokaryotes. And so we're trying to simplify things and in some degree what we're doing is making things more complex than they actually are but on the other hand there's so many life forms there's what over a million life forms so therefore to categorize them we need some way of being able to organize the world so that we can make sense of it far easier yeah okay now uh, the skeptic the the uneducated skeptic a lot of a lot of these people like to refer to themselves as intellectual atheists and uh, while I appreciate the intellect that many of these atheists do have uh, they will often resort to uh, very very base statements like well out of the millions of species that are here on the planet today, how did they all fit on this boat that you're talking about called Noah's Ark? Oh, well, number one, they can take babies. And dinosaurs are, some are large when they're grown, but on the other hand, they start out the size of a chicken egg, many of them do. So you can take babies in there. And if you think about it, all you need is one dog kind, one cat kind. Now, whether or not you can get big cats and small cats from that cat kind, that's another debate. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, though, when we look at the basic differences, we find a fairly small number of animal kinds or animal types that we needed to put on the ark. So basic families that went on the ark to have the genetic capabilities to reproduce all of the species that we see today, we're talking in the thousands, not million. Uh, yeah, and of course on the ark you'd only need to worry about mammals. Uh, many reptiles do fine in the water, mm -hmm. and at least for, for some time. Insects, of course, fish, a lot of aquatic animals, so you're really only talking about a fairly small number of the animal world, which is those that are land-breathing animals. Interesting. And that reduces it enormously because so many of the, well, insects, of course, they estimate a million different uh, kinds of insects. And uh, it's, it's said that God loves beetles because he made so many different kinds of them. <laughs> and so that wouldn't be a concern for the ark. The concern would be fairly small. Okay. And primates and mammals and so on. So there's not that many that one need to be concerned about. Hmm. That, that's fascinating. Uh, let's let's kind of get back to the topic just a bit. And let's talk more on these, these frauds, whether intentional or not, uh, of evolution. 
I mean, one thing that comes to my mind is is Haeckel's drawings. Oh. Can you can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, they're one of the most famous because the key is Haeckel was a really really good artist. I mean, there are very few artists that were as talented as he was. Detail was enormous. In fact, you can buy books today of Haeckel's drawings, and they're beautiful drawings. So he didn't. He had the talent. That wasn't a concern. But when he drew embryos from pig embryos and cow embryos, I guess, and human embryos and so on, when he drew that, he made them look very, very much alike. And later on, when someone began to think, are they really this similar as he drew them? And so they took photographs. Richardson, the main person, took photographs at the stages that Heckel drew them as, and he found Heckel's drawings were really the only way you can describe them is they were forgeries. Were forgeries. Heckel knew better. He was a good artist, and there's no reason he would have except to prove evolution. And Heckel was an aggressive evolutionist, aggressively pushing evolution. In fact, Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, was first translated into German, and Germany had accepted evolution as a whole, as a country, more than most countries in the world at that time. Hmm. And they were among the first. In fact, I have correspondence from Darwin where basically he recognized that indeed Heckel's university, Yenua, that the people, the professors in his university, all of them accepted evolution and aggressively taught this to their students. Wow. And so it spread in Darwin in in Germany first and then spread, of course, throughout the world. So Heckel took a, a lot of artistic license some of it may have been sort of deliberate because he really did like the theory of evolution and he wanted these creatures to have been related at some point in the distant past. All right. He was trying to prove evolution and he thought this would be the most effective way of doing so. And it turned out it was yeah. one of the most effective ways of proving evolution. And that's why these drawings he did or similar copies were found in bi biology textbooks for probably a century, and they're still found, except they say, well, Heckel's drawings weren't very accurate, but his idea was correct. <laughs> his beliefs were still correct, and of course, that's just not true. They're not correct. In fact, the embryos are enormously different during the stages that Heckel drew them. Yeah. Like you said, still in some textbooks today, uh, very similar to Heckel's drawings, they just usually have a, a footnote next to them. But when you see something, and you don't read the footnote, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. This this looks similar, so I guess we're all related, you know, yep. an amoeba to an astronaut. A picture is worth a thousand words. It is. It and does Heckel, a lot to convince, doesn't it? Heckel knew that, uh -huh. and that's why they became, as many Darwinists accept, they became one of the most effective converters of people from creation to Darwinism. Now, you mentioned... Uh, Heckel being German, uh, Germans had started to accept Darwinism early on. When we get uh, into the 1900s, when we get to World War II, when we, when we look at the atrocities committed in Germany, many skeptics will point to the fact that they'll say, you know, the Nazis supported Christianity. They didn't believe in Darwinism. Now, while there might have been a few statements within Nazi terminology that may have indicated this, we find that Hitler himself seemed to espouse most of Darwin's views. Is that correct? Hitler himself, as well as his, I call him his 12 leading disciples. And, and Hitler and his disciples did accept, all of them did accept strongly the Darwinian worldview, and therefore they utilized this idea in order to bring about the Holocaust. That was the, the core of what they're trying to do 
was, of course, applying Darwinism to society, producing a superior race, and that superior race did not include, of course, not only Jews, but also Semites in general, as well as, of course, Semitic people. We realize that six million Jews died in the Holocaust, but close to that of the uh, Slavic people also died in the Holocaust. Is that right? And so, therefore, they slaughtered enormous numbers of Slavic people because they likewise were seen as inferior. In -hmm. fact, Hitler thought he would easily win the war against Russia because they're Slavic people, they're inferior, they're not equal to our own people, and therefore, we should win because we are superior people fighting an inferior people. Uh Therefore, interestingly, when they, in the attack uh, Russia, they basically didn't bother bringing warm clothes because we're not going to be here during winter. We'll win this war. We'll get back home. We all, therefore don't need to wear good clothing in attacking <laughs> Russia. Well, it didn't turn out that way. And as a result, thousands, many thousands of German soldiers froze to death because they didn't have the warm clothing they needed because they ended up being in that area in the war in uh, Uh, December and January and February. And that was one of the main reasons, of course, that uh, Germany lost the war because they clearly were not prepared and so many died in the the winter, the infamous Russian winter. Yes, yeah, that that we hear so often about. So it was was because they did not expect as much of a challenge since they were fighting an inferior people. Exactly, and they made that very clear. They thought, well, we'll win this war in a couple of months, no problem. And at first, of course, with their Blitzkrieg, they were doing quite well and had made significant progress toward Moscow and the other major Russian cities. So they thought, yeah, well, we're right. You know, a couple more weeks, we'll be in uh, Moscow, we'll take over the government, and then we will be able to rule the country. Wow. And, of course, it didn't work out that way at all. No, no, no. Uh, Now, we worked together on a project, a video project called Evolution's Blunders, Frauds, and Forgeries. And then you have written uh, a couple of books kind of in this vein. What are the titles? Uh, Well, I can't remember the (laughs) titles or not, but partially because I come up with my own title, and that's the title I use. And then the publisher says, no, no, we can't use that title. And so they they change the title, and I just ignore them. They're publishing the book, and they say, we're publishing the book. We're the ones marking the book, and we know how to market books, and you just listen to us. And so I say, okay, you change the title, and I I kind of ignore it. but I do have several books that deal with the same t- the same topic, absolutely the same general topic, including Which, the blunders and forgeries. Including the blunders and forgeries, uh, you can find all of those on the Creation Superstore, creationsuperstore dot com. Uh, if you go over to um, speakers and and authors section, click on Dr. Jerry Bergman, you're going to see uh, quite a list of resources yeah. that you've yep. produced over the years. We really appreciate uh, your efforts. Uh, everything that you've put forth for the Christian community, for the creation community, and uh, and your passion for it. Thank you, Dr. Bergman, and we'll have to have you back on a future episode. Okay, thank you. And thank you for joining us. Uh, this is Changing the Narrative. I'm David Reeves. We will see you next time. Until then, keep looking up, because truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. Mm-hmm.